Good evening. We are glad that we can come together as God's people, celebrate the joy of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This evening we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus. I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verse 8 through 16. I'll give you a moment to turn there in your own Bibles. I have no idea what page it is. Second book of the Bible? 66. Sorry. I don't have the New King James here with me. I know that's what you have in the pew. I know it was weird for me. At our church, we always mention the page number, so I was instinctively going to say page 70, but I don't know if it's the same page numbers, so clearly not. Well, let's give careful attention then to the reading of God's holy, inspired and an errant word from Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I know uh, we all have our customs. (laughs) This evening I have the joy of looking at Exodus with you. This is a wonderful book and powerful book. In our own church we're working through it in our Sunday school series. And so we're freshly thinking about the plagues that have occurred. You may be familiar with the story, you may be not. Exodus is the great story of God's redemption of his people Israel from the abuse of Pharaoh, from their years in slavery. We find in the first 13 chapters of the book the people of God under the thumb of Pharaoh. In chapter 14, God in his mercy guides his people to cross the Red Sea. The very waters that pointed to their life were the death to Pharaoh and his armies. This history given in prose in chapter 14 is given in poetry. In chapter 15 of the book, as the story continues, the people, as soon as they leave Egypt, seem to begin to grumble. Here we see the story of manna and the water from the rock. But now we come to our text. I give you that quick run through just to catch you up. Throughout Israel's life, after the events of the Exodus, we find a pattern that emerges over and over again. We see that God himself is graceful with Israel, that Israel meets a difficulty, that Israel blames God, and then God pardons Israel. 
rather than launching them into the abode of death. Today, in this passage, uh, we're going to see a different pattern emerge, something different than what we would expect from what we read in the former parts. In fact, we are shifting from the sins of Israel to the victory of God over his and their enemies. But before we can assess the magnitude and even the foreshadows of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to first acclimate ourselves to the present situation. I often try as hard as possible to find an angle to something that Tolkien wrote. So uh, as old Bilbo Baggins once warned, if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. And so I want us to get settled in rightly for what we're about to look at this evening. There are three headings, three points to guide our time in this text. The first is Israel's situation. The second is Israel's momentary salvation. And then lastly, Israel's eternal salvation. I use points like this because I find it easier to remember the text afterwards and even to summarize it. So we begin with Israel's situation. Like any good puzzle, we must have a clue as to the whole before we can make sense of the parts. Last evening, my wife and I were undoing a puzzle that we had started in I don't even know how long ago. And you could understand what was going on because of the picture. But if you've ever had the misfortune of inheriting a puzzle without the picture and just the pieces, then you're rather lost as to what to do. And maybe some of you brave souls or sadistic souls uh, have tried to pursue this yourself. If you want to conquer a puzzle well, you have to understand what you're aiming at doing. Israel had been in the midst of complaining about God, wondering if he was near to them in the midst of their provisional difficulties, as we mentioned about the bread and the water. Here, God had raised questions about Israel's idolatry. Do any of you remember that question, if you've read through your Bibles before? The people in their idolatrous hearts, we, we were wondering whether God was with her or not. And God showed his presence repeatedly. He showed his presence in the wilderness, just as he showed his presence with the plagues. He provided water. It was an affirmative. Yes, Jehovah God is with us. And now the text shifts to a battle. This people, the Amalekites, emerged over the horizon. And this is the first instance of Israel's major warfare. If you're familiar with their story, there's going to be a lot of warfare coming their way. We don't have a lot of details from our passage this evening. But the very story in our reading in Exodus tonight would be echoed 40 years later by Moses himself as he is recounting to the people the faithfulness of, Je of Jehovah God. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 and 18. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Who are these people? Well, the people of Amalek were descendants of Esau, the very brother of Jacob, whom God had passed over. And as the two brothers had warred earlier in their lives, so their descendants seemed doomed to battle. What we see at work is uh, vividly, then, a wider picture of this ancient struggle between God's promised seed of the woman against Satan's seed. We have to recognize that though we are dealing with historic persons... In historic places, there's far more at work here than meets the eye. But again, we, we have to return to the historical. So Amalek had ambushed the weak and the elderly. He had come upon the very back of the traveling company. How did Israel respond? 
We come to the second point then, Israel's momentary salvation. Moses introduces us to Joshua, the son of Nun. If you're familiar with your Bibles, you know that there's a whole book named after this character, so he must be important. I don't have a Bible book named after me, and neither do you, I presume, depending on the name, I know. But he's an important character. Who is he? Joshua would one day become the very successor to Moses. He would lead Israel into a holy war to cleanse the land of Canaan. As a priest would purify a temple, so he cleansed the land of Canaan. But for today, he was merely a young man called to battle against Israel's enemies. Now Moses, though he would have been trained in the martial arts, because we forget he was raised as a prince of Egypt, especially by his royal upbringing, he does not enter the battle. It may be because that he was an 80-year-old man. But again, there's more to the story than meets the eye. We're told that Moses instructed Joshua in this way, and I'll read verse 9 with you again from the text. He said, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. This is all we get. Moses plans to do battle with these foreign enemies by means of the staff of God, the very staff used to crush the head of Egypt. And the next day finally comes. But this battle goes a bit sideways. What do we have for us recorded in the text by Moses? It says, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. I want to try an experiment. I know we have some children in the church. And if you adults want to participate, you're welcome to do this. You're going to have ice cream later. So whatever calories you burn now, it'll work itself out. I want to challenge you to raise your hand if you can do this. If you're willing to do it, be brave. I know it's embarrassing somehow. Okay, leave that up for the whole sermon. Now, don't hurt yourself. No, you can put your hands down. (laughs) We want to get an experiential grasp of how difficult this task was. It is a major task to keep your arms up for some length of time. Imagine that your family would succeed in this life if you could keep your hands up for as long as possible. If you have some investments, as long as your hands are up, your stocks are going up. And as soon as they go down, they're going down. Okay, gets a little real there, just a little bit. We have to get back to the story. Moses begins to hold his arms up. And why does he do this? When in your life as a Christian do you see people do this? Well, you know the benediction. This is a classic symbol for blessing, for prayer. In fact, God is going to command Aaron, the high priest, to do so when he blesses the people of God later, as we read about in the Torah. But this most basic symbol was one, as we're saying, of prayer and blessing. Moses is lifting up his arms, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the people of Israel. He's praying for them in the midst of of their battles, praying for them in the midst of their conflict. He's praying that God, who had already proven himself faithful over and over again, would do so as he vanquished their present foes. See, Moses knew that God did not bring them out of the fiery depths and furnace of Egypt just to go let them die in the wilderness. He knew something about the faithfulness of his God, which is fascinating. Because if you go and study his call in Exodus 3 and 4, you find all these instances of Moses truly doubting God. He puts on the veneer of self-doubt, but truly he's doubting the Lord. And so what happens in the text? We read in verse 12, Moses' hands grew weary. Look, there's no hands up anymore. Everyone got tired already. No, you can't put your hand back up. You put them down. It doesn't count. 
Moses' hands grew weary. Many of us don't like to admit it, but all of us have limits. How many of you this week are reminded of your limits with your body? Limited with your talent, perhaps. You tried to fix something, still broken. You're not telling anybody about it, still broken. We have limits. It's part of what it means to be a human. Even our heroes have limits. And in this precise moment, Moses, for all of his piety, his religious fortitude, had encountered his own physical limits. If he failed to push his body to its limit, well, the people were suffering. He had been witnessing the battle all before him, and he knew this. And and when we say people were suffering, we don't mean that they had a boo-boo, and now they had to get some neosporin and some ointment. It's that people were dying. Think about the pressure on him as a leader. Think about your own place. If, If your weaknesses, if you allowed your weaknesses to overcome you, that people would die. He couldn't do it alone. But the beauty of the story is not that Moses tried his best and that was enough. No, no, no. The beauty of the story is that Moses, who could not do it alone, did not have to do it alone. The story goes on. We read in verse 12. Moses' hands grew weary. So they, who is the they, Aaron and Hur, took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. All of you right now are sitting on a nice, comfortable chair. You're not sitting on a, on a stone. But if you've ever sat on something hard for any length of time, you know, it's unpleasant. He was thoroughly inconvenienced, but he didn't have to do it alone. Moses may have been called the man of God, called for this unique task of shepherding the people of Israel, but notice that he would not have to do it alone. In fact, the very next chapter of Exodus tells us about his need for assistance and the wise uh, guidance of his father Jethro. I want us to look at something today. There's a lie at work so often in our churches, and it doesn't matter if they're Reformed churches or not Reformed churches or whatever sort of Reformed church we want to say, there's a lie at work in much of American Christianity, and it is that false idea that God intended for Christians to live the Christian life alone. Nothing could be further from the truth. This evening we read Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And verse 9 and 10 is very helpful for us to see this need for one another. It says there, two are better than one. How many of you have had a hamburger before? And you know very basically, two are better than one. This is the Bible proved in your own life. Amen? We can do that. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will uh, lift up his fellow. Now that depends on the friend. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So many Christians today are fizzling in their faith. And they're doing so because they've abandoned their church. They've abandoned other Christians. And when the devil overcame them, they're either wallowing in self-pity or in wicked indifference. And there's no one there to help them out because they have been left alone. I can tell you, friends, that if you are a Christian today, if you're calling yourself a Christian, you are someone who's in a spiritual war. There's a spiritual war for your life even right now to pay attention, to commit yourself to Scripture, to not think about the thousand and one things you'll be doing tonight or tomorrow or this week. There is a constant struggle with the flesh. And so often as Christians, when we battle against the flesh, we think just because I'm being tempted, I've failed, I've fallen, so I might as well give in. I've already screwed it up. No, the evidence of the fight means that you're alive. When there's no fight, there's great concern. 
So what do we do here? What do we see? As Christians, we are called to be engaged in spiritual warfare. There are no casual soldiers on the battlefield. There was only the living and the dead. And the devil, who has been a strategic military general longer than every nation that has ever presently existed, knows that that ancient tactic is still useful for our world today. And what is that tactic that we saw in the Garden of Eden? The most basic of all militaristic tactics. Divide and conquer. Does that work around us? You, Christians, must busy yourselves with the people of God. You have to commit yourself and your children to being people of God, people of the word, people committed to Christ's church. You're here on a Sunday night. I imagine you're people dedicated to the Lord. But we must continue to pursue him, to delight in him, to be concerned about the needs of the other people in this room who maybe you don't know so well, and maybe you should. We have to do this because when the day of battle comes, the enemy is going to unleash every arrow against us. And it's not simply going to be when it's convenient. It's not going to be when you're ready. It's not going to be after you've read your Bibles and you're feeling great. It's going to be when you're exhausted, when you're wounded, when you're betrayed by friends or or alone. That is when the enemy strikes. But notice that in our text today, Moses did not find himself in a moment of isolation in the midst of his weaknesses. In fact, God, in his wisdom, in his love, in his mercy, surrounded him with capable, godly men who were willing to hold him up when he had nothing left to offer. Again, we have a window in how the church ought to function. And that word ought is very important. Parents, you will hold up your child's arms from time to time. If you have little ones who don't know how to walk or are beginning to walk, you hold their hands. And when they stumble, you catch them. And you find out just how quickly your arms are strong or not strong. But you do this as well when you pray for them. You parents, you pray for your children. You pray for God to give you the strength to care for them well, to model Christ to them. You pray for them to love Jesus all their days, that they would profess Christ as Lord. If you're wise, you pray for them to find a godly spouse and have godly children. You pray that your line, your generations, your children's children's children would all be committed to the Lord. And that in his love, that he would allow you to see the fruit of your prayers in your lifetime. We see that God calls us to to care for the needs of others. We as parents, as grandparents, even as friends in the church, we have a role in caring for others. You, Christians, have a unique call to care for the people in this room. We talk about this all the time. We talked about it this morning in our congregation at church. We have a call to love our neighbors. And not just the people who live next door to us. We have a unique call to love the people in our congregations. And the question is, are you doing it? You may not be, I mean, you're going to weird people out if you come from behind and lift up their arms. That is not an application of the text. But are you praying by name for the people in your church? The people who you see week in and week out. The people who maybe feel abandoned or alone, whether they're old or young. Are you praying for the people who are sick? We do quite well with that. Are you praying for the people who maybe appear on the fringes? This must be done by prayer. 
We must pray for these people. We must also lead godly examples in our lives. We want to model. Why do we have children in church today? We want them to see what it looks like to worship God. We want to model that for them. We recognize that we have this call. And if we are lifting up people by prayer, well then, that's good. What is the opposite of that? What what happens? If we are prayerless, we're not lifting them up. It becomes a weight. Our patterns of sin become a weight. Our resistance to God's word is a weight. Our bad-mouthing of other Christians is a weight. Our slandering of our brothers and sisters in Christ is a weight. Our gossip against others in the church is a weight. Our flippancy and attendance is a weight. Our indifference to membership and accountability is a weight. Everything we do is going to be observed and perhaps even absorbed by the people around us. And so the question I'm asking you today is if someone followed you for a week and wrote a a Christianity handbook contingent on your life and your faith and your prayers and your scripture reading, what sort of Christianity would emerge? We have to take a good look at these people. These people need your prayers just as much as you need prayer. We get caught up in our agendas and our difficulties, our fears and concerns, our even most basic needs of bread and water, if we follow the text. But may we never fail to pray for these people. It's fascinating. God has not brought you to any church but the one he's called you to. There may be times where we shift because of moving or other needs. But for the time being, where Christ has called us, he's called us to give ourselves 100%. And so my prayer is that you would see your unique God-ordained role to lift up the arms of the people in your church. Are you praying for your pastor? Can I tell you being a pastor is really hard? Sometimes it's immensely depressing. Sometimes it's incredibly lonely. Sometimes it feels as if we are trapped. Because no matter how hard we try, we can't seem to do enough. Are you praying for your pastors? Are you praying for your elders, your leaders in the church? They too have a heavy task in caring and shepherding your souls. And the same difficulties of pastors are on them. Are you praying for your deacons? Are you praying for your members? Are you praying for your Sunday school teachers? You see how this is? We have so many things that we ought to be praying for. That if we actually sat down and began to do it, we'd run out of time. Are you holding up each other's arms today? Beloved, we need to consider this reality. This unique fellowship. Even this room is a unique fellowship. We have so many different churches present here. And although our churches have many different needs, there is still a singular need for more of Christ. More of his spirit. More of a yearning for his holiness. This is the lesson that Christ has been teaching me, a yearning for holiness. We will never naturally desire it. We need his help. God has given you a unique congregation as a family, and we're called to care well for our families. So what was the result then, coming back to the text, of Moses being supported by his brothers in arms? Play on words. The Bible screams out Israel's victory in verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. If you're going to live this Christian life apart 
from the people of God being the church and apart from the gifts of God being the words, sacraments, and prayer, I can guarantee you that you are going to fail. The only reason you think otherwise is pride. God never wanted Israel to forget this. And so we have the very first instance in all of the Bible when God calls his prophet to write something down, namely the saving acts of God. And it wasn't even for the benefit of those there and then, but for the subsequent generations to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And so Moses erected an altar to remember God's faithfulness. And what did he call it? He said, the Lord is my banner. One of the things I love to do is look at other translations because they're often a commentary of their own. If you wanted to look at the Greek Old Testament that many of the apostles and early Christians use, it doesn't say the Lord is my banner. It says the Lord is my refuge. If you were to trace this out in the, the old Latin text, it would say the Lord is my exaltation. If you wanted to look at another Jew named Josephus, a historian in the days of Paul, the Lord, the conqueror. Why is God described in these ways? Because in the days of our success, we are often prone to give ourselves too much credit and God too little. Moses was reminding all of Israel, not only with the written word, but, but with this visible reminder that God secured their victory. And the same God who stood by them in the past as they stood in the mud pits without straw, is the same God who would abide with them and fight for them forever. I now read De Deuteronomy 20, verses 1, then 3 and 4. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you, against your enemies, to give you the victory. And so, beloved, as Christians today, I don't imagine you're going to go in the Middle East with a sword and try and take people out on chariots. But the question I do have for you is, what battles are you fighting today? What serious, entrenched, spiritual battles do you find yourself in, even this evening? Where do you find yourself seemingly stacked up against impossible odds? How can we hope to survive? As beloved Christians, we must never forget that God's past faithfulness gives us hope for the present and for tomorrow. We must busy ourselves with reminders of what God has done. This is why we read the Bible day in and day out. This is why we must not allow a day to pass where we are not a student of the word of God. Where we sit in awe of the history of God's faithfulness. Because we are quick to forget. As the old hymn goes, prone to wander. Because when we do so. When we commit ourselves to sitting under his word so regularly, his faithfulness, his resume or CV in the text of the word, we'll find that our fears, which were blinding to us, shining lights as large as the sun, slowly grow dim, strangely dim, in presence of the king of all lights, the Lord Jesus. Which leads us then to our last point, Israel's eternal salvation. Every passage of the Old Testament points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, period. 
In fact, if we were to pull the history of the church and see how they understood this text, Amalek became a symbol for Israel's relentless enemy. It was even a code for the wicked Roman Empire. And so if that's true, then God's promise to destroy the Amalekites once and for all time was a foreshadow of God's victory over Satan, sin, and death. How does he secure this victory? Again, we turn to the fathers in the faith who observed the victory of God accomplished by Moses, whose hands were not low, but wide. And there they saw the cross of Christ. St. Augustine summarizes this matter well. He said, Amalek, which was a symbol for the sinful people, was overcome by the cross of the Lord, which is prefigured by the holding out of the hands of Moses. Israel was not victorious merely for the sake of winning a land war in Asia. It's not something you want to do. Israel was not even victorious because Moses himself held up his arms. I've never been in a a fight as an adult, but I've never started a battle like this thinking I was going to win. Israel was victorious by the power and wisdom of God who chose to foreshadow his abiding promise of victory over the seed of the serpent by means of the seed of the woman. And this is how the first 600 years of the church understood this passage. It was about Jesus' once-for-all victory being foreshadowed before us, veiled in shadows and types. This means then that we, as the people of God, are victorious only ever because of the cross of Christ, that our victory is secured by means of His victory. But there's even more than that, even more, uh, one more foreshadow of Christ. The very successor to Moses, Joshua, bears the very same name of Christ. His name, Yeshua, Joshua, it's the same name. In Greek, these are the same names. And so just as Joshua ran into the midst of the battle to fight for the people of God and lead them into victory, the Lord Jesus is not idle, hoping, and waiting for his people to respond to a message of salvation. Jesus Christ himself is busy in waging spiritual warfare with the devil on our behalf because if the Lord Jesus abandoned us to our own devices, our own wisdom, our own good works, our own morality, we would be lost. The psalmist writes in Psalm 94, which we sang this evening, in verse 17 and 18, If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. The same Lord who fought for Israel then fights for you today. Do you know that, as Christian? Is that bringing your soul comfort this evening? Because I don't know you. I don't know your story. I don't know where you are struggling today. But the Lord knows. And you are not alone. God has empowered you with tools to fight. Are you utilizing them today? Are you anticipating the battle when you are at your weakest? Amalek came against Israel when they were weak. Satan pursues us when we are weak, when we are tired, when we are hungry, desperate, and alone. So often, this is why when we are maybe right before bed, maybe a place of great temptation for us to think about the day and be furious or sad. Depends on the person. But how then can you learn as Christians to be proactive, to be 
proactive rather than reactive in the day of spiritual battles? Are you surrounding yourself with godly brothers and sisters? Moses was only able to be supported because he did not isolate himself, nor did he refuse help when in need. Sometimes it is our pride that costs us our sanctification and strength. We refuse to ask for help. We must learn to admit our own neediness and enable and empower our own brothers and sisters in Christ to step into ministry that God has called them and designed them for, which may simply be encouragement. Are you recognizing that the cross of Christ and even the Lord may sometimes seem far off? But he's at work when he seems distant from us. We can trust that. Though Christ may feel far from us, maybe you're in that season this evening, we know that he is still fighting for us and will continue to fight for us. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Beloved, are you fighting tonight? Israel was guaranteed the victory by means of Moses' upheld arms. Israel had been led into victory by means of God's warrior leader, Joshua. Israel had been led to perpetual and eternal victory by means of these men. But all they did was foreshadow our victory and the greater Joshua to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel had to fight. We are called to fight. And so are you fighting today, putting your sin to death? Warring against the world and the devil by prayer. Are you following the example of Paul who said in 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you are called. If we wanted to put it uh, in a colloquial way, we could say that Christianity is not for wimps. Christianity is warfare. It's not one with swords and guns, but with prayer, preaching, bread, water, wine. These are the means that God has designed to build his kingdom. And so he, he begins this in us. And so my prayer for you this evening is that you as well would commit yourselves wholly unto him. If you're far from him tonight, if you're indifferent to him tonight, that this moment right here, right now, would be a place of rededication to the Lord. That you would rebuild perhaps the broken walls that lie about your heart. Because if you stand divided, if you're ignoring your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're unwilling to be honest about your neediness before him, if you're keeping back certain bits of your heart, then you're already losing ground to the enemy of your soul. The king has come to secure his people. He has come to liberate you. To leave those fears behind, those chains behind. To be the lover of your soul, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, who extends his welcoming hand to all by simply saying these words, which we've already had tonight, heard tonight, but are worth, bear, uh, worth repeating. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. And lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. With the word of God before us, then, let us pray. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercies that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That everything we see in the scriptures are true and for our benefit. And tonight, Lord, if we are weak, it is good. Because it reminds us that we are finite creatures and that you are the eternal God. We pray, Lord, that you would help us tonight to give ourselves unto you, to lift up our hearts unto you, O Lord, to glorify your name. And to that end, O God, we pray, make speed to save us. We ask, Father, that you would forgive us for our cold hearts towards one another in Christ, for our indifference to our brothers and sisters, for our gossip and slander, for the ways that we have allowed the enemy to prosper over us and for us to simply lay over and die. But Father, would you strengthen our hearts today, strengthen our hands, build us up in this faith, and we thank you. Remind us that the Lord Jesus has already secured our victory, that he has spread his hands and his arms. Strengthen us with this reminder. Encourage us with these reminders. Comfort us this evening, we ask. All to the praise of your glorious grace, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.